0: I'm Alicia. Hi, I'm Sarah. We're two English teachers reclaiming literacy through pop culture. Welcome to LitThink. Just a quick programming note after editing. Um, We had some mic issues and we worked our way through them, but you will notice a little bit of an echo and feedback. So just bear with us, and hopefully you still enjoy our discussion of Oppenheimer. Well, welcome back, everyone. We are looking today at Oppenheimer because Alicia's being a good sport (laughs) to do do this one. All right, so way back this summer when it became barbenheimer and it was like the big thing and every and so many people were doing both in the same night my husband and i did both in the same night we went to oppenheimer first because i've been excited about oppenheimer for over a year and then we went to see barbie after it was a nice palette cleanser to <laughs> see barbie after watching oppenheimer um but it is and now that's award season and this one has been up for so many awards for a lot of good reasons and it is one I was really excited to see because as a history major, along with being an English major in college, I did a lot with World War II and Cold War studies. And so I had done some, I actually did an entire paper on the nuclear bomb and the reaction to the nuclear bomb after World War II. And I do a lot of research and looked, and I looked at some really awful photos and life magazines from the 1940s and early 50s and so alicia thank you for being a good sport because i know oppenheimer was not your cup of
1: tea (laughs) let's clarify the the window i had to watch oppenheimer was in my world in between feeding sessions of an infant so i am sleep deprived i'm back to work already the last thing i wanted to watch was this very bleak commentary on just how all humans are basically effed and we're terrible and there's no hope in the universe <laughs> and yet I was sitting here I mean I, I made it I think I did not pull out my phone and just start being like I can't and so therefore I was live texting a friend I think in the last hour I've almost like I can't I can't this is a lot I did start falling asleep then in the last half hour and my partner finally said just go to bed So then I came back to it during one of the the middle-of-the-night feedings. It's just like, oh, my gosh, this is first. It's just so dark. Uh, But let's clarify a few things. One, both Barbie and Oppenheimer, good golly, the star-studded cast. I kept being like, oh, my gosh, they're so-and-so. Oh, my gosh, they're so-and-so. And And I know, Sarah, you said that it would be harder to recognize Robert Downey Jr. But I was laughing because, I mean, as soon as he walked on the screen, I said, well, I mean, Sure, you're not being Iron Man, but it, it's still, it, it's the ego, it, it's this, the stage presence of Robert Downey Jr. as soon as I saw him. But let's also note, I know you are the history, the person with the history degree in the room, but I always joke I have an adjacent history degree in the fact that my father was a history teacher for most of my life. And so, I mean, the way that my dad first, my dad and I first really super bonded is when I started healing history class. And so he he would teach me everything I need to know about history right before the test. And let's also be honest, I, I would argue he made me into an English teacher in those sessions because he taught me history through stories. And arguably- That, that is the sign of- a good history teacher. 100%, 100%. That is how a good history teacher 100%. teaches history. I mean Absolutely. he would there, he's talking about the founding fathers and he's getting me all invested in the feud of John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, you know, one of those side bits that isn't included in the Hamilton musical. And yet it still happens. But uh, it's the reason why I think yes, history comes to life when we put people in the midst of the facts. And that's actually exactly what we want to talk about today as we address historical fiction as a genre and process how Oppenheimer presents itself in the historical fiction umbrella. So with that in mind, I would actually say, let's start with just kind of defining what historical fiction is. And I think it's exactly what I just said. History and the study of history itself is the indisputable facts and data. And yet, I mean, there's a whole bunch of we could constantly pull apart. There's so many fascinating psychological studies of, to this day, there are people who believe, that have mass believe that something happened, and yet there's no evidence that it actually happened. So mob mentality is a real thing. People can be convinced about our concept of facts, right? Truth is already something that's wibbly wobbly. It's a valid and important thing to consider, especially in the context of the English classroom. But that's also why I think something like a biopic or honestly just narrowing in that historical fiction lens, we're taking facts and we're going to couch it in some sort of specific lens, whether that be a specific location and a group of people, a specific individual, a specific just time period analysis. But historical fiction is, it's not really even playing with what if so much as the who and the how, and adding an emotional thread through those facts and data. Do you agree with that?
0: It's making it personal. Yeah. I mean, as a kid, I loved historical fiction. And I loved reading historical fiction, because I got to learn about a historical event. But there was just enough fictionalized stuff thrown in there, mm. whether it was characters that were kids that were thrown in there and doing them. I mean, our kids also went through that phase or some went through a huge um, phase with the magic tree house series, right? Like there's these series that like to grasp on to this idea of what it is, what those historical events are and give you just enough to also make it like, Hey, this is something that happened to real people. Real people went through this event and um, even if these fictionalized people didn't actually exist, people like them did exist. And I think there, there's this resur- there is this resurgence right now of biopics that the, there's so many of them coming out right now. And I think a lot of it is because we are hungry for stories about historical events. We're hungry for stories of people who... We're significant to history and we really, we want to see how their stories connect even to where we are today. Mm -hmm. Like the new one coming out is the Bob Marley one. And we've seen the preview for that for a a few times, and I'm super excited to see the Bob Marley. So, you know, it, we, we've seen a lot of these coming out and Oppenheimer, I think, spoke so much to our cultural and political moment in so many different ways. And that's why a lot of people wanted to see both that and Barbie at the same time, because they both kind of and they both on opposite ends of the spectrum spoke to the same moment Mm. that in history, the same moment in history, but also the same moment where we are right now politically and socially. And it was just a fascinating study in human behavior in some ways.
1: Well, so immediately, if we step backwards from the biopic for just a second, I mean, as we're talking about historical fiction, my first historical fiction fix is actually the American Girl Books, which the whole point of that yeah. was to add a human perspective to these different eras. It's about A girl just like you grew up in this time period. And I think that's what we need to acknowledge as well. And historical fiction can also put a fictional character in a real setting and then humanize that history through that fictional character's lens. But a biopic is going to take a real-life person, and maybe that's a little bit of the what-if, is what if we look through that person's eyes at these historical events? And I would add even some of my favorite biopics that have come out in the past few years, I think of Rocketman and Bohemian Rhapsody, both which also played with how an artist's music played into their own story and the development of their identity and expression. So, I mean, so then it's kind of even interesting then to think about Oppenheimer, similarly, is how does an artist's creation (laughs) reflect their their identity? Uh, But I I want to point out, I think one of the things that I thought was most interesting about Oppenheimer, and then I want to come back to you being our Oppenheimer expert on this episode, Sarah, but one of the things that I found so fascinating about Oppenheimer himself, or Appy, as they called him in the whole film, was one, <laughs> he's not a mathematician, right? He hundred percent he learned very early on in his career math and actually specific application, lab-based application, he's crap at. He's really good at empowering and connecting to other people that can take his ideas and run with them, just like Einstein. I mean, that's what he and Einstein bond over at one point, actually, is Einstein's like, you know, I'm crap at the math. I'm not going to run these numbers for you. Whoever said it, they're probably right. But the other thing, just fascinating reflection. There's a lot of, I think, foreshadowing. And then I think Oppenheimer, if we're talking about him reflecting back on himself, we hear him quoting the story of Gilgamesh and connecting to the god of death very early on in the film. But his studies, the way he finally really became famous enough in the field of physics to be observed by and connected to the army for the Manhattan Project was because he was studying black holes Which are this when a star dies? What is left over? And he he, this idea of this deep, vast concept of nothingness. And we even then for him, the bomb was created, and they had predicted this amount of deaths. But one of the things that none of them had predicted was the ripple effects. I mean, to this day, that Japan is experiencing the impacts of those. New Mexico, where they blew up. Yeah, I would say New Mexico. Yeah, just is still
0: to this day dealing with land that is uninhabitable and mm-hmm. that is hurting people. And it and there's native like indigenous people's land. We also need to point yeah. that out. Right. Yeah. And he actually was really concerned about that at, after the fact, right? Like he wanted the land to go back to them
1: mm-hmm.
0: and the government was like, well, we can't do that. We're not doing that. Even though he wanted the land to go back to the people it belonged to initially. Mm-hmm. And, I, there's just so many layers to this when we look at what happened at the time and then the impact after the fact. and I, I I think it's interesting that the movie is based on a book about Oppenheimer called American Prometheus, which for us is both of us having taught Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Frankenstein is subtitled modern. modern, yeah, modern Prometheus. Modern Prometheus. And Why so you've modern, got. <laughs> But, you know, you have this modern Prometheus, this idea of a god, which, you know, he's a titan, right? He's a titan. He's a titan. And he gives fire to to humans and gets punished because he gave fire to humans. And it's interesting because you have the same thing happening with Oppenheimer. He gave fire to humans. And what were they going to do with it? And I would say humans have not done great things with it that either so you know i I think it's really interesting for us to look at the film even thinking about the the genesis of the film Mm -hmm. being this idea of someone of greater power because oppenheimer was a genius right as someone of greater power giving something to people who should not have it Mm -hmm. and should not and his concern the reason why he gave it to the american government is because he was so scared of the nazis getting it Right. Because he had so much fear. And that was really a fear of a lot of people in government at the time. So much fear of the Nazis getting this power that he was like, well, if anyone should have it, we should have it.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And there's a lot of hubris in that. But then the question is, what would have happened? Had No, like there's so many what ifs with the atomic bomb. Mm -hmm. No one knows how to answer any of those what ifs. No Mm -hmm. one. Mm -hmm. And we'll never know how to answer those what ifs. So I, it, it, I liked the complexities of the film, that it really kept asking those what ifs, but the showing that we have no answer for that. We have no answer for what if and this another government had gotten a hold of it. What if we hadn't actually exploded the bombs in two places, not just one? What if we had all of those what ifs that just kind of
1: built up? Well so real quick, this is my English teacher brain getting knotted up. I was quoting the wrong Shelley. The man on Prometheus is Frankenstein. Prometheus Unbound is a quote by or is a poem by Percy Shelley.
0: <laughs> so there you go. Yes. Uh, yes. Because it's the it's this it's the poem about him going about um Ramses. Yes. It's the poem about Ramses, yes,
1: right? Yes. Yeah. So anyway, sorry about that. But then uh <laughs> connecting back to yes, I mean it one of the things we're calling talking about the this being a biopic i want to break down a bit more kind of the elements of what makes the biopic and thinking again specifically about that lens in just a second but the other thing if we're talking about specifically oppenheimer's lens from a very early standpoint you know he is an american he goes and studies over in europe and that's one of the fascinating things is he has all these connections with German scientists, as he comes back to America, he's very aware of the political landscape of what is happening in Germany leading into World War II. And by the way, he's Jewish. So, Mm -hmm. and, and in fact, many of the scientists who are on the Manhattan Project are Jewish. So not only is there this race of, yes, who is going to get the science first and just who's going to apply it. So he, he almost thinks he's doing the civil service by, well, if I just give it to Americans, I know they at least aren't killing Jewish individuals. But there is, for him, this deeper vendetta of, I know how Jewish people are being treated around the world, not uh, magically better in America either. He's facing anti-Semitism at every, in every direction, so it is kind of... Constantly the film plays with What is the lesser of two evils What is not the greater good But what is the least wrong thing to do
0: Yeah And we see that over and over Mm -hmm. And over again In the film And that tension is there Over and over and over again
1: Yeah So I think that's one of the things that I, I do have to tease you Sarah and I take turns when we make notes for the show and this has been true since we were teachers together sarah and i take notes very differently we're two very different people i write these really abstract notes that just basically have words in them it's kind of like okay this leads to this leads to this maybe if i need to know a specific fact or specific date i got to include that so i don't forget it outside of that i need the bare bones so i just talk they're talking points Sarah in an amazing way. She writes herself a script that she doesn't stick to at all then. That's the thing that makes me laugh the most. She she just said before we recorded, well, I have to write it all out. I said, yeah, but Sarah, when we actually then look at it together, you reference, but you do not (laughs) read. I think it's fantastic. But all that to say, in Sarah's notes for this episode, she brought up some really fascinating ideas. As we think about a biopic, there's kind of four different directions that a biopic can take. So, you know, I brought up my uh, my examples of Rocket Man and Bohemian Rhapsody. Even those two films, as they look at um, music, musical artist, a queer musical artist as well, and how his music fit into his life story, they do it in two very different ways. One actually uses the original voice of Freddie Mercury spliced over the actor. And then the actor is just playing the speaking roles versus the other one casts a still living musician and they have someone singing his music for him. So I mean, there's already kind of just examples of all the different ways we can do some different things with a biopic. But um, there's kind of these four examples. We have based on a true story which this one's going to be, okay, it's actual true events and the facts aren't really different at all. We're going to stay as close to the the outline of the data as possible. Then there's inspired by a true story. So this is going to involve a real person and real things that happened in history. But we're going to take a few more creative liberties for the sake of... Developing that story arc that we're used to. Our rising and falling action, our conflict, our climax are all going to look different because while our lives do follow this cycle, they don't follow it as neatly as can be presented in a two hour film. Those based on true events, so this is going to take a historical event and create a story out of it using fictional characters. So this is my example of the American Girl stories, is they have true events that happened, but that character that's at the center of the story is not a real person that exists in history. And then inspired by true events, this is going to take a true event and then tell a cinematic story with nearly all fictional characters and fictional macro events. So uh, Sarah's example here was Top Gun. Are there actual pilots like this in the real world? Yes. Do they face conflicts like they do in the Top Gun films? Yes. But do those people actually exist at that actual base? No. So with all of that, those kind of four possible examples, Sarah, where would you fit Oppenheimer on that spectrum?
0: Oppenheimer is definitely based on a true story Um, because as I said, it is based on American Prometheus, which is the biography, which is an biography a biography about Oppenheimer, but it does. Nolan did everything he could to try to stick as close to the factual events as possible while also taking typical filmmaker liberties to just tell a more interesting story and not even a more interesting story, because I think the story of Oppenheimer just his his actual life is fascinating Mm. and everything it did is fascinating. Right. But it's just sometimes when you're trying to fit an entire person's experience here, even if you're just dealing with leading up to the atomic bomb, there's just so much to include. You sometimes have to condense characters. You have to condense timelines. You can't have everything happen in exactly that timeline of events. And you know, you want to have your clear foils. And so, you know, he wanted to have Louis Strauss as a clear foil. So the way he was going to tell the story, he was going to make sure that we got that big moment where he's in his hearing to get confirmed as commerce secretary. And it doesn't happen. And mm-hmm. apparently, and I, so I did look up like what was real, what was not real. And there were several scientists who spoke out against Strauss, but it wasn't just scientists. There were people in government who didn't like Strauss. He was mm-hmm. not a very likable guy. Mm-hmm. And I think Robert Downey Jr. did a phenomenal job of playing a not very likable guy. Mm-hmm. But this is also happening at a time. The 1940s and 1950s were so fascinating in so many ways because this is also Mm. happening at the time of the Red Scare and we're dealing with Mm. communism and and the spread of communism and the Cold War. So all of these things post atomic bomb Mm. were so complex that. It, it he Nolan just does this brilliant job, I think, of weaving those two storylines together and showing how one really fed the other and then it just was like a beast that just kept eating itself and yeah. it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And um so it's definitely a film that's based on a true story. You could sit there with your cell phone, like I typically do when I'm watching any movie like this, and start like googling things and looking things up. <laughs> My daughter and I were doing that a few weeks ago when we decided to watch um, "Walk the Line" with her. So then she mm. and I were both looking up things about Johnny Cash to make sure we were getting mm-hmm. the right the seeing what was real and what was not. Mm-hmm. Um, it, that, but that's that's where it fits, and I think. In all four types, I think that the fascinating thing with historical fiction, and the fascinating thing with historical with fictionalized history, right. so you've taken history and you've you fictionalized points, right? Is that the best ones are still seeking to tell the truth.
1: Hmm.
0: You may change the facts because the facts don't quite work right. Like I remember this fascinating interview listening to Lin Manuel Miranda talk about. Um, Hamilton because he based Hamilton on a very intensive biography of Alexander Hamilton,
1: right? Like it's it's like an 800-page
0: biography. But <laughs> my husband read it. I have not finished it because I could not finish it. It's so dense.
1: Yeah, and but, read it for fun on a family vacation. Yeah, he he was on vacation. Just gonna read this biography of Alexander Hamilton, yeah. which is just insane <laughs> to me. Shows just how brilliant the guy is. My history, but anyway, (laughs) yeah,
0: no. Um, But it was fascinating when I heard this interview was talking about um, the the fact that Eliza, it wasn't Eliza, it was Angela, so Angelica. So when she went off to Europe, she was already married, right? Mm -hmm. And she had been married for a while in in real life when she went off to Europe, and he had (laughs) forgotten like he had, he had written one of his songs and he had forgotten that this was actually like, so he just was telling the story. He was having fun telling his story and and fictionalizing some things along the way. And then after he was done writing the song, he remembered, Oh yeah, that's not what really happened. But then he decided just to leave it in there because it worked and he liked the song. So he was just going to keep that little tidbit that he changed in there. And, um, I think that that often happens with writers too like they want to tell as truthful a story as possible they want the the truths about us our human condition and the truths about the human situation and and all of those things to still play out but they have to make changes to be able to tell the story in the timeline that they have to tell the story it's why any book that gets changed into a, a television series or a film has to have changes because mm-hmm. you, you have to get to the heart of the story. And sometimes that means making cuts or making changes because you need to update pe- parts of it. Like there are things that just need to be updated for a modern audience. There's nothing wrong with that
1: either. That so is, I, I'll tell you, you know, in one of my most recent experiences in writing, I've been working as a ghostwriter of a person's memoir and constantly talking to this person they would say, oh, but I want to talk about these five friends during this time period. And they said, for the sake of story, we might need to water them down to one. And they said, but that's not the truth. And I said, that's what we talk about, creative nonfiction, which historical fiction is a type of arguably creative nonfiction. The lines can blur sometimes in that space. And in a lot of memoirs, you'll see they'll have a note at the beginning or they'll say something about, you know, details in my life story have been changed for the sake of the arc of, uh, again, of of rising action, falling action and conflict. So uh, yes, there's similar to none of us are ever going to have the, you know, sweet music at the end of a full house episode and the gentle moments where suddenly everything was resolved in our family conflict Nothing is as clean-cut as a 30-minute sitcom episode. Similarly, historical fiction is going to have to add some very clear bookends to a story that realistically doesn't have those bookends. And that's what I think is so interesting. I will tell you, I mean, Oppenheimer is not a short film by any means, but even in the first hour, Nolan very distinctly creates several different streams that he is developing. Partially through, um, we have Oppenheimer's hearing, we have the Senate hearing that's in black and white, and then we have the past, or the beginning of Oppenheimer's story as a scientist. And eventually, they all weave together. But I'll even tell you, I was like, "What is this Senate hearing have to do with what's going on here?" I mean, they are feel like three very different strands at the beginning, and I, as an audience member, I, I felt very disoriented of i i don't really even know where to go and then there's this constant oppenheimer he from the beginning of the film nolan shows him having i mean these nightmares he can't sleep because he keeps imagining these concepts of a world imploding as he thinks about atoms and the terror of molecules in the universe you know the size of all these particles so just the imagery where it constantly then rushes, you hear a lot of white noise and you see a lot of early on explosions as he thinks about the terrifying world concept of the microscopic world.
0: Well, it's an interesting film. It's a visual of stream of consciousness. Mm -hmm. You don't get, a visual of stream of consciousness very often, mm-hmm. and it was just fascinating to get that visual and to see that this is what's happening in his brain at the same time as all this other stuff that's going on around him. Mm-hmm. It was for those who have watched a Nolan film, it's a very Nolan esque film. It's mm-hmm. <laughs> like it is. It it has his his damp his fingerprints are all over it. Mm-hmm. Obviously, um, you get some. And what, what was the one with? um leonardo dicaprio where he was dream. it was like the dreamscapes but you get some memento in there like you can feel the films that he has built up to this moment Uh, where he's right here he's but i'm trying to remember
1: yeah isn't it insomnia Inception. no it's
0: not insomnia inception isn't it inception it's inception yes So like (laughs) i think
1: it's inception
0: I've seen so many of his films and sometimes you don't even realize you've seen his films until after the fact. And they're yep. like, Oh, that's a Nolan film. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and both of us love the bat, his n- Nolan trilogy for the Batman trilogy. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know anyone that has watched the trilogy that doesn't loved it, but you know, that's n- neither here nor there. But, but yeah, really you, you get this, those... the
1: psyche of Batman, you know, Batman yeah. is a very psychological superhero, but the dark knight trilogy even more i mean heaven handedly leans into the psyche of gotham as a city and how batman fits into that entire progression
0: and you're getting that psyche with oppenheimer mm-hmm. you know just mm-hmm. the, the realities of his fears and the way he's seeing the science because that was what was felt, because i'm not a science person right mm-hmm. But just the way you see the science, and you see the atoms splitting, and you see the way he's visualizing it all coming together. And then really one of the most bleak moments of the film is after they get the news that the bombs successfully were detonated in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And he can see the entire crowd of the room that he's in
1: decimated in his head and so well, he's, visual- he, he's he's visualizing stepping on the remnants of the bodies as he goes to leave the room and everyone's yeah. giving him this standing ovation he's stepping i mean they almost look like something from Pompeii or something like that i mean just the, the, these husks yeah. of people that have just been impacted by the explosion and he's he stepping that's up before on he the even yeah, and
0: that's before he even sees any of the footage because they do eventually see the footage of the aftermath in both cities and that's before he's even seen that.
1: But let me also just push back. For all of one's work, I would still say I struggle with the film and I don't, I don't see how it could have happened. But there is not a single empathetic character in this story. And I think that's even, as I was looking at, fine, okay, it's a hopeless commentary on humanity we're all terrible, the end, Oppenheimer, in a few <laughs> words. But there is not a single person that I want to hold on to. I mean, there's, there's the woman that he has an affair with, who calls him out on his crap and you know, says, you know, you're actually a lot simpler than people make you out to be. Even arguably Einstein, who kind of looks at him more than once in the film and says, I told you so, don't do it. Is it really worth seeing this abstract concept to fruition I kind of want to say, Einstein, maybe you could have been involved more and fixed it or solved it or stopped people. I don't know.
0: Yeah, but he didn't want to touch it with a ten foot pole. And I, I, I was fully aware of that, but I was still
1: just like, <laughs> I, I was I was frustrated at Einstein. And that's a whole other side commentary to talk about the fact, I mean, we have, the scientific community has put Einstein on a pedestal and Einstein himself was like, I published my theories You're right. I had no idea that you guys were going to develop a whole new type of science around my ideas. But at the end of the day, I'm just here. I'm a guy thinking thoughts. Moving on. Yeah. 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 Uh, Super side note. I'm sorry. I'm going to go down this tangent. But uh, if you guys ever want to go down a super rabbit hole, look up the history of Einstein's brain and what happened to it after he died because someone stole it and it's a whole thing. Anyway, um, then we're gonna have to find a link to that and put that in the show notes. Yes, I agree. (laughs) (laughs) I uh, I think it was was another podcast that I listened to, so I might we might have to. Of of, course, that's a podcast (laughs) here, but I want to tell you guys: Uh, this is also me saying Einstein is a human. We all think he's fascinating. We all love the image of him with his kooky hair and his tongue sticking out, but that doesn't mean that we know the man. And I think that's even, you know, it, we could be so quick, how often do we talk about the inventor of the gun? He must hate himself in our current world. Oppenheimer has moments of moral consciousness. He says, oh wow, that kind of hurts. And yet he's still accepting awards. He tries to use his platform to... Defer the science that is going in this direction, but he never once comes out and, you know, overtly protests and says, stop, this is bad. And again, he still accepts how many awards of lifetime achievement by the time he's done. Again, complicated, but not empathetic or sympathetic at any point, more just like, ooh, <laughs> this isn't yeah. simple.
0: Well, and when I looked up the notes about how much of the movie is true, I mean, even his wife, no one in real life liked his wife. No one in real life liked Oppenheimer's wife. So Emily Blunt's performance is so, so good. She's so good as his wife Mm -hmm. and not being likable, which is so hard for her not to be likable.
1: But... Yeah, it was a really good so, episode. I remembered it tells you the story of what happened at Einstein's brain. We'll link it in the show notes because it's a fascinating. <laughs> yeah, it, it's just and it's all around our concept of like intelligence because IQ tests are very privileged and uh, essentially developed as, as a form of um, racism in our education system. So it's then going back to if we're saying that Einstein is kind of the smartest man alive, what bunk truth is that grounded in? Uh, That's a good question. Yeah. Yeah. Einstein does have one of the smallest brains that's ever existed in human history. That's
0: fascinating. So,
1: again, I'm sorry. This is a full tangent. So you can decide if you're going to cut it out in the editing. (laughs) I I think it's fascinating. I think we should keep it. We are talking
0: about biopics and finding out history and finding out the truths about history and knowing that facts and truth are not necessarily the same
1: thing here. I will say also one of my favorite fictional representations of Einstein was Walter Matthau as Einstein. He's in a movie with Meg Ryan. I'm going to forget what the movie's called. But um, anyway, he he plays a pretty great Einstein. It's a rom-com. Interesting. Yeah. So, I think that's a great point for us to shift over to what are we reading and enjoying right now. I'm going to start today because I think both of mine are very relevant to the Oppenheimer era. One is a historical fiction mystery novel. It's a murder mystery called Park and the Vision. My aunt actually recommended it to me. It's by Naomi Hirahara. She spent, I think, at the back of the books, of like decades researching this book it's The premise is it's about um, a Japanese family who was sent to an internment camp and then ends up after the internment camp, they're not allowed to stay on the West Coast anymore. They're forced to relocate to Chicago, actually. So Clark and Division are two major streets in Chicago. And just weeks before they arrive, their um, older, the protagonist's older sister had gone ahead to like guarantee housing for the family. And they get news just days before they arrive in Chicago that she has died. And the police want to say it was a suicide and the protagonist is certain that her sister would never commit suicide. and That has to be a murder. And so the whole novel is playing with one, the concept of what it is to be a Japanese American in this American time period. But then also let's add going to the Midwest when I mean, diversity was not yet really a thing Mm-hmm. Um, especially not white diversity or non-European diversity. So uh, it, it pulls apart a lot of that while also following the line, <clears throat> excuse me, of a murder mystery. So uh, quick read, very enjoyable, highly recommend. And then I know we all know about the Red Scare. Mm-hmm. We're very aware of the Red Scare and the McCarthy era, but one of the biggest parts of the Red Scare or adjacent to the Red Scare that we don't talk about is the Lavender Scare, which was a huge part of the McCarthy era, even though McCarthy himself, a lot of research has come out that he was involved with in several queer relationships beyond his marriage, and one of his right-hand men ended up dying of AIDS because he also was queer. McCarthy was involved in, I mean, again, witch trials, putting people on the stand and forcing them out of government jobs uh, because he outed them for... In some way being queer so ultimately covering his own butt by pointing out lots of other people beyond himself but with that in mind there is a great showtime mini series that just came out called fellow travelers that talks about two government workers and the the layers of what they have to go through to try and have a relationship in this era facing you know, putting constantly in the midst of their love putting their professional lives on the line and what that looks like. So highly recommend. Very well done. Another star-studded cast. You'll recognize a lot of the people on the screen. So that's what I'm enjoying right now. What about you,
0: Sarah? Well, when I was at NCTE, I stood in line as teachers do at NCTE (laughs) (laughs) for free books. And one of the ones that I stood in line for was the new release, Enter the Body by Joy McCullough. And I got a copy for you, and I got one signed for you and brought it um it is a fast yeah and i read it in like two days because i was doing it during um sounds the same reading time now that i'm back in school and it is a novel mostly in verse um it does use iambic pentameter in a couple of places Uh, i believe it's cordelia's story that is mostly an iambic pentameter um, in fact, the, the other characters really pick up on it. But it's from primarily this perspective of Juliet, Ophelia, Cordelia, and then, it's because I haven't spent any time studying Titus Andronicus, just because it's such a problematic play. Um, but the um, the daughter in that one that gets raped and her hands get cut off and, and everything. I don't remember her name. Um, it was just fascinating. It was I, I like thinking about Shakespeare's women in so many ways, because I think that Shakespeare's women have gotten, I don't think he didn't give them the credit they deserved. I think people throughout the last 400 years have not given his women the credit that they deserved. Cause I, I really still argue in a lot of ways, many of his works were more feminist than people wanted to give them credit for at least for the 16th and 17th century. Um, So it was uh, was fascinating to see the way they would rewrite their stories and they have this whole like reimagining of how they would rewrite their endings. So we see them going through this whole process and it's interesting Um, with some other side characters that get thrown in. So I recommend that one. It's a good YA fiction one, especially if you like Shakespeare, as both of us do. Um, And then my husband and I went to see The Iron Claw, which is another story, bitch, another movie based on a true story, but it's about a wrestling family from the 1980s, and mm-hmm. I don't follow WWE as it is now. It went from WWF to WWE. I don't follow <laughs> professional wrestling at all. I have no interest in it. I, I know like a few big names like The Rock, right? Um, John Cena. Like, I know them. <laughs> That's pretty much it. Mm-hmm. But this family was like... There were five brothers. The the oldest actually died when they were all really little. Um, And we didn't get clarification on that, but the other four survived. And so their father who had always wanted to be a wrestler, he always wanted to be like a world heavyweight wrestler. He wanted to win a belt and he didn't. He, because wrestling is a rough entertainment business. So he never got where he wanted to go in there. So he basically raised his four sons to take up his banner and, One of them of the five survive this whole like venture, like one of them um, gets hit so many times and he ends up bleeding out internally while he's in Japan after he thinks he's okay. One of them ends up losing his foot And because he gets into a motorcycle accident after he wins a world championship belt, he gets into a motorcycle accident because he's drunk and he loses his foot and then eventually commits suicide. And then the youngest who was the baby of the family wanted to just be a musician, but because his other two brothers had died, he kind of felt like he had to like carry the wrestling banner. And Mm so he has this freak accident where he ends up in this surgery. Like it's a whole, uh, the whole thing, the whole family, like it's awful, but it was so good. And Zac Efron plays the brother that survives. Mm. And he, this is the best I've ever seen Zac Efron him Mm. act. Like this was just his best role ever. He really embraced the role. He got really ripped for this particular role. He put on a lot of muscle and weight for this particular role. Um, And was just, phenomenal through the whole thing and you have no empathy for the father whatsoever none none he he's just a terrible human being um talking about characters with whom we don't empathize but the brothers you really like they were just so close and then he the father puts this wedge between all of them because he wants them to fulfill his dreams and because they were so close and then he puts this wedge between all of them that is another tragedy it's a tragic story but it was Very well told. Mm. Very well told.
1: Mm.
0: So anyway, I highly recommend it. And it it was appropriate since we were talking about
1: (laughs) biopics. Well, that's why I picked my two is because they were both historical to the era that we were addressing. So hey, with all of that in mind, you know, we never turn off our lit think brains. There's so many places you can engage with those lit think brains that aren't just the podcast. So don't forget about Facebook and Instagram at LetThink Podcast and our Substack newsletter where we share blogs and all sorts of resources like the random Einstein podcast that I (laughs) just (laughs) added to our show notes because I want to make sure you guys can access it.
0: And we are going to be doing a flashback Friday for a few weeks to go back to old episodes like from the very, very beginning. So if you are subscribing to our newsletter, you will get those in your email box so that you can get a a little bit of a backlog from the stuff and hear how far we have come (laughs) as podcasters. (laughs) Because it is not the same as it was almost three years ago. So 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 you can hear how far we've come. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So please sign up for our newsletter. And this has been Sarah and Alicia signing off. Keep on lip thinking, people.